Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, January the 9th, 2022. Um, we are back to race relations in America, never-ending subject. And indeed, uh, particularly in the 19th, mid-19th century. Uh, we did a show last year with Linda Hirschman, the historian, um, who has a fascinating new book out, The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved a Nation. It's the, in many ways, very traditional, heroic narrative of Northern whites or alliances of Northern whites like William uh, Lloyd Garrison, the Boston-based abolitionist, and Marie Weston Chapman, another New England uh, romantic anti-abolitionist who united with um, African-Americans like Frederick Douglass in the struggle for abolition. Uh, this is the standard narrative, but it's not entirely true, as all standard narratives are. Um, the North was in many ways just as racist as the South, as most Americans know, both in the North and South. It's one of the unspoken, unpleasant truths. Uh, we did a show last year, for example, on the deep ties between slavery and Wall Street with um, Jonathan uh, Wells, the author of The Kidnapping Clap. And we're back to a real more truthful analysis of the North in the uh, in the Civil War era with one of America's most distinguished historians, Jacqueline Jones, who has a new book out, it's out today, No Right to an Honest Living, The Struggles of Boston's Black Workers in the Civil War Era. Jacqueline is joining us from Concord, Massachusetts. Second time lucky, Jacqueline. We had a technical uh, glitch uh, first time around. And I guess in the 19th century, America had a, a bit of a, a technical glitch when it came to race, didn't it, Jacqueline? Well, certainly we can talk about racial ideologies and how they affected um, populations of African descent. I, of course, don't use the word race that much in the book. Race is not real. It's a fiction. But uh, these ideas about... Oh, hold on, wait. Uh, I, I mean, we're not... Um, Jacqueline, excuse... Um, Excuse my interruption, but what do you mean race isn't real? Uh, I'm not clear on that. Is it a, an invention uh, of historians or of racists oh, of one kind or another? No, its, it's origins go far back in history as uh, so-called enlightenment thinkers began to categorize plants, animals, and people and create hierarchies of uh, the so-called races. Supposedly, uh, all peoples could be pigeonholed into certain categories of race. And we know that's not the case now. Uh, race, I said, is a, a fiction. It's not real. However, uh, ideologies of race, prejudices based on this notion, are very real. And that was certainly true in, uh, in America in the 18th century. Thomas Jefferson began to speculate about so-called racial differences. And he, of course, was using uh, for his case study his own enslaved workers. So we can, can, I, see can I jump in, uh, uh, Jacqueline, again? Because it's a really important and obviously enormously controversial subject. So 
you wouldn't you wouldn't um you wouldn't argue against the idea that some people have lighter or darker skin color than others. What word should we replace then race with? Well, we could talk about ethnicity. We could talk about national origins. We could talk about certain regional cultures. Uh, certainly, yes, there is a wide spectrum of physical difference among people, but that doesn't mean that certain people are superior based on their physical appearance. So, so yeah, so to, to come back to this, so are you arguing as a historian that if we use the word race, then by definition, we're doing it in a way to suggest that some groups of people are superior or inferior to others? Yes, I object to the word because it does kind of reify this notion of a hierarchy of groups based on this fiction of skin color or national origin. Certainly we can talk about uh, prejudices based on skin color or based on national origin, but I think the more we use the word race, the more we give legitimacy to what is actually a, a false notion of human difference. Should we then also get rid of the word racist? Not necessarily, because as I said, people are, uh, some people believe that race is real and they are prejudiced uh, accordingly. So I always argue that racial ideologies are real. The people who believe in a hierarchy of races are prejudiced, are prejudiced and that has had a tremendous impact, obviously, on uh, U.S. history on world history. So I'm not denying the prejudices. I'm denying the uh, scientific and social basis of this notion that we can all be separated into separate groups according to this idea of race. So let's go back to your book, No Right to an Honest Living, The Struggle of Boston's Black Workers in the Civil War Era. Um, a small proportion of people living in the Boston of the mid 19th century were, were black. Um, were most of the whites, Jacqueline, racist in, in the way in which we, we just described the word? Well, we have to go back to the 19th century and look at various groups of white people. It's difficult to generalize. Certainly there were white abolitionists who uh, really, really were in the forefront uh, along with their black counterparts uh, fighting against the institution of slavery, advocating for its abolition. There were tensions among white and black abolitionists. Some white abolitionists were not too keen on their black counterparts playing a large role in the movement. Um, there were, however, in Boston, Boston had uh, more than its fair share of white people who were very conservative, who objected to abolitionists as troublemakers, as men and women who wanted to disrupt a very lucrative trade between the slave South and Boston and its hinterland. So again, there were, um, I would say, a spectrum of ideas among whites during this period. But the title of the book is taken from um, comments made by John, Dr. John S. Rock in March of 1860, when he argued uh, that Black people had no right to earn an honest living in Boston. Uh, Rock, a, uh, an intellectual, a physician, a dentist, 
uh, public lecturer. He took special aim at white abolitionists in Boston at the time, Wendell Phillips, Theodore Parker, William Lloyd Garrison, and argued that although these men and white women uh, reformers as well were uh, courageous in their abolitionist stance and endured all sorts of physical violence and really vicious criticism, these men and women were not that concerned about the plight of their Black neighbors in the city of Boston. So um, I'm impressed by the tremendous recent literature on the Black civil rights movement in the North during the antebellum period and after as well. But I found that uh, those books do not take into consideration the workplace and the fact that economic justice continually eluded Black men and women in Boston, even though Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts were held up as beacons of enlightenment when it came to... So, so does this speak to the, the hypocrisy of whites? Are you suggesting in the book that for all the noble talk of freeing blacks from slavery in, in America, that they were, you scratch them a little bit, and this is the, I think this is in many ways the view from the South that they were racist, or is it, is it more complicated? Why was there such a struggle of Boston's black workers in the Civil War era? Um, um, what what no, was going on? I know that, uh, just to be clear, you, you mentioned before we, we went live, of about 150,000 people living in Boston, three, four, maybe 5,000 of, 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 of the residents of Boston were black. So it's still a relatively small amount of people, but they struggled to get work. Yes, they did. Um, and just getting back to this question of white abolitionists and whether they were racist, I mean, that's such a, a general term. And we need to, you know, we need to bring some precision to this discussion. I do think that prominent white abolitionists and, and William Lloyd Garrison is a prime example here, did not want to alienate certain potential supporters and donors in the Boston area by pressing for integrated work sites. In other words, um, Garrison had a newspaper to publish. He wanted to get as many subscribers as possible. He wanted to raise as much money as he could in the fight against slavery in the South. And a lot of um, Boston employers, merchants, counting house owners, shop owners, uh, employed people and wanted to keep a certain amount of uh, peace among their workers. Integrating those work sites would have been a problem for them and because white workers were adamant and that they would not work with black so, workers. So, um, if they weren't willing to share the workplace, if whites weren't willing to open up their factories and their, their, their offices to, to black people, how willing were they to open up their neighborhoods? Doesn't it, I mean, did they, did they think that they could have a black neighbor but not a, a black coworker? Well, among all cities in the United States in 1860, Boston was among the most, if not the most segregated. So for the most part, the black population lived uh, on the west side of Beacon Hill in what was called the West End. And they clustered, they weren't um, 
numerous enough to create whole communities themselves, but there certainly were clusters on streets, South Axe Street, for instance, later Phillips Street. There were clusters. And we find that uh, white landlords uh, are not always willing to rent to uh, Black people. We find that white homeowners are not uh, always willing to sell to Black people. So there certainly uh, segregation is a fact in Boston, although not um, on the, to the extent that we recognize residential segregation today. But you know, there was a, a fight to integrate the schools in Boston uh, that did not take place, that was not successful until the mid-1850s. By 1860, Boston is priding itself on its racial egalitarianism, the fact that Black men could vote, Blacks and whites mm. could intermarry, the children could attend school together, Black men could serve on juries, um, Black people could move in and out of the Commonwealth at will. So, uh, these um, rights and privileges that accrue to Black people were substantially more robust than um, the rights and privileges enjoyed by Black people in other parts of the United States. Yeah, you use the word clusters, Black people living in clusters in Boston. Some people might think of you using that word euphemistically. I mean, is that a, a polite New England word for a getter? Yes, you could say that uh, these are areas of low rents. Uh, people tend to double up. The families take in borders. Uh, Boston is the home to many, many freedom seekers from the South during this period. It's not clear that the census taker was able to count them all, but um, these are households that have to support themselves and they do so often by having a lot of adults who work uh, live in the same the same place so the, that was um, it was an economic strategy and it was a way to acculturate newcomers into the city but at the same time uh, the rates of tuberculosis among the black population were very high because of these extremely congested, Conditions. You, you are an authority on labor. You, one of your books, uh, Labor of Love, Labor of Sorrow, Black Women Work and the Family from Slavery to the Present. You've also uh, one, another book, a highly acclaimed book, A Dreadful Deceit, The Myth of Race from the Colonial Era to Obama's America. So you're very familiar with all the issues around race and racism, even if you don't like the word in America. Uh, in your new book, No Right to an Honest Living, what's the conclusion? As, I know there are people in the South who think that the North is just profoundly hypocritical on race, that Northerners were and still remain just as racist as, as Southerners. Is, does, does your book suggest this? Are, are, are you finding that in, in an odd kind of way, the, uh, the experience of being a black man in, or a black woman in, in Boston in the mid 19th century was as bad as being a black man or black woman in the, in the South? No, I wouldn't argue that at all because uh, the black people in Boston in 1850 and 1860 were not enslaved. I mean, that's kind of the bottom line. It is true that they were relegated to low paying menial jobs, that they had very little opportunity to advance 
up and in any kind of occupational ladder. They were by this time pretty much uh, barred from the skilled trades. They were barred from factory work in the Boston hinterland. Uh, but of course, uh, Boston did attract uh, many people, many uh, black people. So what could the they? Uh, so what could they do? What were they allowed well, to do? The educational institutions in Boston were well known. Uh, just uh, being able to get your children into an excellent public school system that was integrated meant a lot. And I found it, se several instances of. Uh, black men and women after the war moving to Boston, uh, primarily for the educational advantages it would give to their children. Some, there was a mass migration out of the South in 1866, 1867, into Boston, primarily women and children. This was a migration sponsored by the Freedmen's Bureau uh, as refugees from the war in the South sought work in the city. And, um, so, you know, it's, it's very mixed. Certainly there was a great deal of hypocrisy among white Northerners. At the same time, we're not talking about uh, the South, where uh, the physical brutalization of Black people is routine, where in the late 19th century, uh, campaigns of disfranchisement, of uh, systematic violence are directed at Black people. So it is obviously the city is very different from southern city it's an important book an important uh an important narrative uh Jacqueline we're going to take a short break now and then uh, after the break I want to talk about the broader lessons from your book and, and and how we need to proceed not in the 19th but in the 21st century on the issue of labor and of blacks and whites in America today so we'll be back in about 30 seconds everyone don't go away Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back. 
with Jacqueline Jones, the author of No Right to an Honest Living, The Struggles of Boston's Black Workers in the Civil War Era. Uh, Jacqueline Jones is one of America's most distinguished historians. Um, Jacqueline, what other lessons for us today in the early 21st century of your book? I know it's a serious history and um, the, the world today is quite different from the middle of the 19th century, but history will always, good history from um, uh, serious historians like yourself will always offer lessons for uh, the present. So what do you think your book tells us? Well, I, first, I think we should note that despite the upheaval of the Civil War, the loss of more than 700,000 lives, despite um, the New England Industrial Revolution, by the late 19th century, the emergence of a retail and um, sales and sector, um, that the, the social division of labor remained the same for Black people. And that is, they were doing basically the same things in 1900 that they were doing in 1850. And I, in the book, I stress the failure here of white allies. Since their numbers were so small, black people were going to have to rely on white allies in their struggle for economic justice. And I tick them off, um, white abolitionists, white Republicans, um, uh, the, uh, uh, reformers, labor reformers, who might have had an interest in pressing for um, economic justice were um, oblivious to the plight, seemed to be oblivious to the plight of black workers. The clergy, civil uh, city officials who employed uh, workers on public works projects in Boston, all uh, veterans who uh, served in this white veterans who served in the Civil War. I mean, at, at every step, white allies, white potential allies, failed uh, black workers. So that's the first lesson: the importance, the absolute necessity of allies in this quest for economic justice. Secondly, I would point out that both political parties, Republicans and Democrats, showed no interest in pursuing the uh, cause of integrated work sites, of breaking down these segregated workplaces. And that's telling because it meant that, in essence, Black voters had no real political home to speak of. And finally, I would remind everyone of the cumulative effects of these menial jobs that paid so little and offered so little in the way of advancement. Black people were not able to purchase homes. They were not able to uh, send their children to get a higher education. There was a whole cascade of consequences stemming from this fact that they made so little money and their work was so unpredictable. So those are certainly lessons today. The social division of labor today is a, a huge issue. I mean, once again, we, feel, we hear a lot about voting rights and that's absolutely essential. Voting is a cornerstone of our democracy and we should uh, make sure that the suffrage is expanded to include all. But uh, less often is a, a call for economic justice, for justice in the workplace, 
calls for uh, a higher minimum wage, for instance, often fall on deaf ears in certain parts of the country. Uh, we're, we're seeing the legacy of these 19th century issues. Again, the relegation of black men and women to menial, ill-paid, casual labor that really uh, offer little to subsequent generations in terms of capital accumulation, home ownership, and so forth. We did a show um, on the failure of Reconstruction. David Reynolds, who's written a magnificent biography um, of Abe Lincoln. What was the story of Black Bostonians after the Civil War? Did their lives change very much immediately after the Civil War? Certainly there were Black Republicans who uh, got appointments in the Customs House in Boston, in the Postal Service. This was a favored few who had been loyal to the Republican Party before the war. And they were rewarded, uh, again, with jobs as long as there was a Republican president in the White House. However, this was only a small number of Black Bostonians who got these jobs. And as I mentioned, uh, white labor reformers who were actually quite active during and after the war, Iris Stewart uh, fighting for the eight-hour day, Jenny Collins, who was an advocate for white women workers, especially factory workers, these labor reformers had nothing to say about discrimination toward black workers at all until by the late 19th century, again, we find um, there is a, a familiar story with a, a very few, very well-known uh, and well-paid black workers, uh, Robert Morris, who was a, an attorney, J.B. Smith, uh, a very popular caterer in Boston, uh, and others who made a decent living. And then many, many people who, who had to struggle uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. In the late 19th century, we see in Boston and other places progressive thinkers, and I use capital P for uh, thinkers during this progressive era. They were not necessarily what we would consider politically progressive today, but they began to look at this social division of labor. John Daniels wrote a book called In the Birthplace of Freedom about Blacks in Boston, and they began to kind of solidify this notion that Black people are left out of machine work, left out of factory work, left out of retail sales, uh, because they're incapable of doing these jobs. And they base that conclusion on the fact that there are no people, Black people, in those jobs. Uh, right, so, so their logic was, um, uh, this is a family show, we can't be too rude about it, but it wasn't very impressive logic. You, you, you wrote a book, um, Jacqueline, Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. What were the... The radicals, what was their response to the lack of change in Boston in, uh, in, in the late 19th century? Well, certainly the anarchists were a very, very small group. And uh, as a group, they had little interest in uh, the plight of black workers. One of the great ironies of Lucy Parsons, of course, is that she was born to an enslaved woman in Virginia in 1851. Uh, her master 
took his plantation to Texas during the Civil War and uh, settled outside Waco, Texas, in the central part of the state in 1863 or so. Uh, Lucy Parsons herself was a very light skinned. She later presented herself after her husband, Albert Parsons, was accused of uh, throwing or being implicated in the Haymarket bombing of 1886. She later um, concocted a fictional narrative about her background, claiming she was um, had Mexican and Native American parents, which was not true. Lucy Parsons was very much a part of the German socialist community in Chicago for uh, the years after the war. Later, she and her husband uh, embraced anarchism. But again, there were very few um, black uh, laboring class uh, workers in Chicago during this time, at least not enough to capture the attention of either the socialists or the anarchists who remained focused very much on factory workers and skilled workers during this period. As I said, you're the author of uh, A Dreadful Deceit, The Myth of Race from the Colonial Era to Obama's uh, America. So you're an authority. You've done a, a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of research on the history of relations between whites and blacks in America. Are you arguing, Jacqueline, that really the focus when it comes to inequality, and I use racial inequality carefully because I know you're not careful, uh, you're not very keen on that word, but uh, equality between blacks and, and whites in America, is it really ultimately an issue of labor and of work rather than of politics or of legislation? No, I would say these are all critical issues. Certainly, again, we can't disregard fundamental the fundamental building blocks of democracy. We have to be concerned about the expansion of the suffrage, all kinds of rights. But what I try to argue in the book is that, uh, well, no one has a right to an honest living right. There's no right uh, along those lines stipulated in the constitution. But we have gradually expanded our notion of what people are entitled to in this country. For instance, that kids are entitled to a public education, so forth. I'm just, arguing that we should add to the constellation of rights that have been won or that have not yet been won, the idea of work uh, and the idea of uh, the right to an honest living, as John S. Rock put it in 1860. Uh, labor issues have to be incorporated in a, in a very precise, and significant way into our discussion of the civil rights movement. Uh, I mean, one could argue that we've been much more successful in, in, in furthering uh, the right to vote than furthering the right to a decent job. And again, some would argue, well, there is no such right uh, to a decent job, but I would argue again that um, economic justice is foundational to our society. Well, it's an important work from an important historian. It's just out, No Right to an Honest Living, The Struggles of Boston's Black Workers in the Civil War Era. Well worth reading for anyone interested, and we should all be interested as Americans in this issue. Congratulations, um, Jacqueline, on the book. And I hope uh, you will, in the not-too-distant future, come back on this show because we need serious historians like you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.
Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.